0: What makes wine kosher? Let's start with that question. What does make wine kosher? Um, I should point out before we get to what makes wine kosher wine sweet, that kosher wine is not necessarily sweet. The reason why people associate sweet wine, the reason why people as- associate sweet wine with kosher wine is because Jews in New York when they came to this country, were fairly poor. Were immigrants. Um, New York doesn't have very good grapes. They only have sweet Concord grapes, so they were making wine from local grapes, um, which turned out to be very sweet. And so, as a result, wa- the wine became sweet. Um, later, as many Jews assimilated, and their only re- their only relationship with Jewish culture or Judaism. Their only relationship with Jewish culture and Judaism was um, the wine that they drank and they wanted sweet wine. They started adding sugar to it to make it super sweet. But no, traditional Jewish kosher wine is not sweet. Um, So wine has always been considered the most important drink in Judaism. In fact, our sages, when they wrote blessings for different foods, they made a special blessing just for drinking wine, borei Puri ha'gafen, that we make every time we drink wine, we make the blessing borei Puri ha'gafen. We also have a special after blessing that we do just for wine as well. When the temple stood, the Torah tells us they would offer sacrifices on the altar together with every sacrifice. It was also a mitzvah to pour wine on the altar. Our sages also instituted the Torah commands us to remember the Shabbos, which we our oral tradition tells us to announce Shabbos when it comes in. At the beginning of Shabbat, we're supposed to make an announcement. Shabbat, the holy moment is beginning. God, has, this is a holy time. At the end of Shabbat, we're supposed to announce that Shabbat is ending. Our sages said when we make this announcement, we should do it over a cup of wine. So we do it at the beginning of Shabbat, we call it Kiddush, where we make this blessing. Our sages wrote a blessing for it, um, thanking God for making the Shabbos holy. And at the end of Shabbos, Havdalah, where we thank God for separating between the holy and the mundane. It's a Torah commandment, but our sages added the wine to add to the prestige and the importance of the moment. They also, when we every year sit at our Seder, one of the most important events in the Jewish year, and we remember the Exodus, Matzah and Marah, they told us to drink four cups of wine. Each cup has a special purpose. Each cup we do something else with at the Seder, but they said to drink four cups of wine as well. Furthermore, by every Jewish major, major Jewish life cycle event, they told us to say a blessing over wine at a Brit, at a circumcision, at a Pidyon HaBen, when we redeem the firstborn son. At a wedding, we always make a wedding. We actually have two cups of wine. The first part of the wedding, we have one cup. The second part of the wedding, we have a second cup of wine. And then at the blessings, at the end of the party, um, the, great, the blessing after we eat, we also do a cup of wine. So wine has always had an important part in Judaism. And we Jews drink a lot of wine for that reason. Every Shabbat, we drink wine. wine. Why? Why wine? Wine, wine? So, wine remains today one of the most prestigious and expensive drinks. You can buy wine today for tens of thousands of dollars, some bottles, um, but wine is cheap wine, of course. But wine is a very prestigious and expensive drink. I know there are others today. Maybe some whiskeys are pretty pricey. But wine remains um, throughout the world um, as a most prestigious and expensive drink. In our, the times of our sages when they instituted this, which would have been in the early days of Judaism, probably about 3,000 years ago, wine was the most prestigious drink. It was at a party, at an event, a sign of honor, an important occasion. You would celebrate with a cup of wine, which is something that we still do today. And so because wine was a celebratory thing, it was a matter of prestige. If you want to add prestige to the moment, our sages say the best way to add importance to the moment would be to do it with a cup of wine. You want to make your announcement that Shabbos is coming or Shabbos is ending, do it with a cup of wine. It makes it a lot more important and prestigious. The wedding, you want it to be an important thing. Do it over a cup of wine. The bris, and so on and so forth, do it over a cup of wine. It makes it very important. Why? Because it makes you feel, people relax and feel better? Culture has always valued wine as a valuable drink. It's alcoholic as well. It has an alcoholic <clears throat> component, but it's not just the alcohol. There's always been other cheap forms of alcohol, like beers. But the wine was always the prestigious, expensive form of alcohol. Is it because it relaxes people? It it definitely, it's alcoholic as well. But it's not just that it's alcoholic. Is it because there <laughs> is about that. wine. I think Why I alcohol? answered that. Because wine is a prestigious drink. Annette? Um, I thought I read somewhere that the reason that alcoholic beverages were so prevalent in ancient times was because water sources weren't um, that safe. Yes, that's true. And they drank alcohol in preference to water. Yes, that's true. They did often drink alcohol in many places where they did not have safe fresh water sources. You are, that's that's absolutely correct. But wine was always the more expensive and prestigious drink. So yeah, wine, though it's a very important drink and has always been in Judaism, um, like all alcoholic beverages can be a source of problems. It can be a source, firstly, of alcoholism. People can build an addiction to alcohol, which can be, firstly, unhealthy, can hurt our health and also hurt our ability to function it can further lead to dangerous behaviors. Even before we had cars, and you could kill someone when you drive after having drunken, people make bad decisions after consuming alcohol. Um, In our own Parsha, Lot gets himself into trouble after he consumes alcohol. So while wine is an important part of Judaism, there are also limits on which wines are kosher. And not all wine, in fact most wine, is not kosher. Now, what does make wine kosher? So wine itself comes from grapes. Now, generally, plants are kosher. There are some limits of most kosher. In other words, most kosher laws involve animals. Most animals are non-kosher. Only a handful of them are. They have to be prepared in a very specific way. However, there are kosher laws with regard to plants, a number of them. Um, they're not as common. Um, mostly, that involve the land of Israel. In other words, plants in the land of Israel have certain tides that have to be separated. The Shemitah year, which we spoke about a few year, a few weeks ago, um, a year that we're not allowed to work the land. And so, there are limits to plants in the land of Israel. But outside of Israel, there generally isn't, with some exceptions. And so, generally, you could go into the fruit store and buy any fresh fruit or vegetable, and it would be automatically kosher, so long as it has no additives. So in theory, wine comes from grapes, and so long as it has no, no non-kosher additives, it should be kosher, like most plant-based foods. And the truth is that even today, when most other foods do have additives, wine today remains, it does have some additives, but nothing that would re- be a kosher problem, nothing that common would, commonly would be a kosher problem, and generally wine would not have any non-kosher ingredients in it. So from an ingredient perspective, wine should be kosher. However, some close to 2,500 years ago, in the days of 2,300 years ago, to be more precise, in the days of the Second Temple Period, the members of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism, in other words, Judaism for our first 1,500 years or so of Judaism, we're 3,300 years in. But for the first 1,500 years of Judaism, there were the, um, we had a Supreme Council, a Sanhedrin, and the Supreme Council had the authority to legislate and make laws. And we are bound, we Jews are bound to follow all the rules and all the laws that were made by the Supreme Council till today. We are bound by all they are called rabbinic law, but it doesn't just mean rabbis made the laws. It means the Supreme Council of Judaism in these early years made, legislated these laws that we the Torah requires us to follow. So about 2,300 years ago, in the days of the Second Temple, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council, made a handful of laws involving food produced by non-Jews. One of those rules that they made was they limited which wines we can eat. Now, at the time, during the second temp- early Second Temple period, there was a concern about wine. Wine was commonly used in pagan rituals. In other words, commonly people would use wine, just as we used wine in the temple, wine was poured on the altar, many pagan rituals used wine as well. And so, wine was often poured for pagan ritual. Now, the Torah bans any form of idol worship. We're forbidden from worshipping idols. We're forbidden from doing anything that remotely resembles idol worship. Uh, many of the rules in the Torah, in fact, may be connected to our banning of idol worship. The Torah also forbids us from having any benefit from anything that was used with, uh, in the worship of an idol, in pagan worship. So any item that may have been used in pagan worship we are forbidden from using. Since wine was commonly used for idol worship, so any wine that had been used in the worship of idols, even the leftovers, would be forbidden for Jews to use under the biblical law, the mitzvah, that bans usage of anything that had been used in uh, pagan worship. Now, since it was common during Second Temple period for many of the pagans at the time to use, um, to even when they were drinking wine, to pour out a little bit of the wine um, or um, take out a little bit of the wine with their fingers to um, and kind of designate it for their idol, and that was kind of part of how they would prepare the wine to be drunk. That would then forbid the wine from being, from being drunken. So because it was commonly done, the members of the Sanhedrin said that Jews should not use any wine that was touched by pagans. If it was made by pagans or even touched by pagans, we should not use it because it may have been used um, in the worship of idols, part of the bottle or part of the barrel may have been used in the worship of idols, which would forbid the entire barrel or bottle from being used as part of something that had been designated for idol worship. And so therefore, they banned Jews from um, using any wine produced by a non-Jew. And for that matter, they banned Jews from using wine that was even even touched by a non-Jew. They banned Jews from drinking such wine or even deriving any benefit whatsoever, such as selling it, trading it, um, deriving any benefit from wine that had been touched by a pagan idolater um, in suspicion that they may have used it for their pagan worship. What about wine that was touched by somebody who is not Jewish, but not an idolater? They don't worship idols. They're not pagan. And we can be fairly certain that they didn't use this wine in their pagan worship. So the members of the Sanhedrin, at a certain point, extended the ban of wine that had been produced or even touched by pagans to wine that had been produced or touched by all non-Jews. And the purpose of this ban was in order to um, keep Jews from partying with non-Jews, in order to keep Jews from marrying outside the faith and assimilating outside of the Jewish people. So in order to keep us from partying together, going to singles events, bars, um, uh, where non-Jewish girls and non-Jewish boys are hanging out, in order to keep us from doing that, our sages said even non-Jews who are not pagan who don't worship idols, um, who don't um, use wine in the worship of idols, um, they still, their wine, uh, any wine that they produce or touch should not be drunken by, um, should not be drunken by a Jew. However, while a wine that was produced or touched by a pagan, we are forbidden from even benefiting from If the wine was touched by a non-Jew who is not pagan, who would not have used it in service, in worship of um, their idols, we are forbidden from drinking it, but we are not forbidden from benefiting from it. We can buy such wine, we can sell such wine, we can serve such wine in our restaurants to non-Jews, of course, not to Jews, uh, but we would be uh, allowed to benefit from it. We just would not be allowed to drink it ourselves. So where would that put non-Jews today? So many non-Jews today are definitely not idolaters. Someone who's atheist, agnostic, non-religious would not be considered an idolater. Um, Muslims are believe in one God and are definitely not idolaters. Now, with regard to Hindus, Hindus definitely do worship idols. Buddhists is debatable um, whether they do or they don't. Um, we believe that Christians do, since they believe in a second God, even though they have a complex system for, their, for more than one God, but since they believe in a Christians that do believe in a trinity, and not all do, but most do, Christians that believe in the trinity, we do believe them to be idolaters, although many Christians find such a statement offensive, but it's technically true. And so for our halachic purposes, for Jewish law purposes, it would be considered, we do believe Christianity is idol worship, um, which is why th- throughout the years, Jews have given up their lives, not to, when forced to convert to Christianity, they have, chosen to die, not to choose idol worship, which would be forbidden as opposed to Islam where there were communities that did convert to Islam when forced to, uh, particularly in Iran, because Islam is generally not considered idolatry. Regardless, both Christians and Hindus don't use wine or at least pouring wine in their services. Christians, Catholics do use wine in their services but they don't pour wine in their services. They definitely don't pour wine every time they drink or every time they open a bottle um, in honor of um, mm. in honor of in an idolatrous way. And so, therefore, um, it would. While there's been some debate over that, it would definitely it would appear that such wine would not be considered wine touched by a pagan, but just wine touched by a non-Jew which would mean that while we would not be allowed to drink wine that has been touched by non-Jews, whether Christians, Muslims, atheists, agnostics, whatever background they may be, we are allowed to benefit from such wine. We would be allowed to trade in such wine. And the truth is, historically, Jews have been wine traders. Most of the wine business in Europe and really around the world, has historically been a Jewish business um, for many, many, many centuries, if not thousands of years. Um, We Jews have always been um, leading in the wine business, and we still are today. Many of the big, famous wine brands are owned by Jews. Um, uh, Alcohol in general has always been a Jewish business, and uh, because we are, therefore, we are allowed to benefit from wine touched by non-Jews, though we do not drink such wine. Now when a non-Jew for a non-Jew to make the wine non-kosher would be by either if they produce the wine or if they even touch the wine What about now the, now that would be even if they don't touch the wine but even if they touch the bottle or container the wine is in by picking up a bottle and pouring wine into their own glass you have a bottle of wine on the table and they're sitting at your dinner and they take the wine and pour it into their glass that wine would then be forbidden to drink however that is only if the wine bottle is open if the wine bottle is closed it is of no concern whatsoever so we can ship wine through you know through Amazon or through um on, through FedEx and many non-Jews will be handling the wine and it's all closed bottles and that is of no concern. We're not concerned whatsoever so long as the bottles are closed. Once the bottles are open though um, the wine should not be touched by a non-Jew and if it is then it becomes non-kosher. The reason again for this prohibition it originated as a prohibition um, it originated as a prohibition um, because pagans were using the wine in idol, idolatrous worship. However, the sages, in about 2,300 years ago, extended it to any wine touched by non-Jews in order to keep Jews from socializing too much or drinking too much together with non-Jews, leading to intermarriage. So in order to limit that, they banned uh, us Jews from drinking wine that has been touched by non-Jews. There is a workaround I will get to in a moment, but first let me take some questions. Yes, Tika? What about the cultivation of the grapes? That can be done by non-Jews. Only the production of the wine itself. Even the transport of the grapes can be done by non-Jews. Only the production of the wine itself. What about the winemakers? Winemakers. The winemaker would have to be Jewish. Jewish. If they're making the wine, yes, they would have to be Jewish. Yes? two questions. One is, like at a wedding or bar mitzvah, there's an open bar. Does the wine server, the person who's opening the bottle? What do you do? That's a very good question. I'm going to soon give you the workaround. Okay. My other question goes back to Sukkot. When you were talking about the Esra, how it could not be grafted onto another tree, but with wine... Aren't they always grafting from one type of uh, grape? That's, long, that's fine, that's fine. As long as you're staying within the grape family, that's fine. Okay. That's fine. We are forbidden, actually, from drinking wine that was planted together with other fruit, but that's not generally done today, so it's not really a concern. Now, we know yes. that Eric grows grapes and creates wine. Just by the mere fact that he does it and he's Jewish, does that make it kosher wine? <laughs> We're going to get to that. Trying to save (laughs) me (laughs) here. So now there is a very important work around to the prohibition of drinking wine touched by a non-Jew. And I should point out that we have very often, when the Sanhedrin and the Supreme Council made rules, they often made rules with loopholes in order that when necessary there's an easy work around. And so, since the original rule that was made was to keep us from drinking wine used in idol worship. So when our sages extended that prohibition to all wine touched by non-Jews, even though it was certainly not used in idol worship, they retained the original parameters of the original rule, banning us from drinking wine that could have been used in idol worship. Now in the common forms of idol worship back then, in the days of the second temple, the early days of the second temple, twenty three hundred years ago, when this rule was first made, they um, at the time, pagans would not use wine for their worship if the wine had been cooked. It was considered if the wine was cooked, it was considered ruined, and they would not use it in their idolatrous worship and therefore, in the original ban that banned wine that had been touched by pagans. Um, Our sages did not ban wine that had been cooked, because if it had been cooked, we know certainly that had been touched after it had been cooked, that is, because once it had been cooked, we know certainly the pagans would not have used it in their idolatrous worship. So when the sages, when the Sanhedrin uh, extended that ban to all wine that was touched by non-Jews, they extended the ban only for the wine that had been previously forbidden under the original rule, banning wine touched by pagans. However, they did not extend that ban to wine that had been cooked. Since it had never been forbidden when they had forbidden wine touched by pagans, It was not; they did not extend the rule for wine touched by non-Jews to wine that had been cooked. The Hebrew word for that is mevushat. Muvushal means to be cooked. And so therefore, if the wine is cooked, then it does not become forbidden if touched by non-Jews. So that is a very important workaround, very somewhat easy workaround. We can cook the wine and then it does not ban. Then if a non-Jew touches it, it does not make the wine Forbidden. Yes and then. Before it's bottled or after it's bottled? So today, very good question, I'll get that in just a moment. So today there are a lot of very great kosher wines. I mentioned earlier when our grandparents first came to this country, in the old country in Europe, they used to, Jews were always wine drinkers. They were cheap, cheap, locally produced Eastern European wines. And then in Eastern Europe you were able to buy Italian made wines. Jews controlled the wine industry in Italy, which is where most wine came from in Europe, historically. And um, Italy and France, and the Jews were very involved in the wine industry. In fact, we have lots and lots of records of Jewish wine trading going back almost a 1,000 years. Um, And Jews imported wines from Italy to um, Eastern Europe. You could buy them in Eastern Europe. They had good wines, too. Uh, but when we we came to this country for a very long time Jews were poor uh, were immigrants and there wasn't really a market for good kosher wines they would make cheap wines from sweet Concord grapes that were produced in upstate New York um, sweet wines that didn't taste very good some people still have these horrible tasting sweet wines as childhood memories Um, but they somehow yearn back for it so <laughs> so with, with time, though, as the Jewish community um, moved to the suburbs and the second, third generations of immigrants became professionals and wealthier and um, started purchasing things of greater value. With time, Jews also started looking towards better quality <coughs> kosher wine. And of course, Jews drink wine in very, very big numbers, very, very large amounts. We have wine every single Shabbat. We drink wine. So we in Passover, we drink in for every single person at the seder is drinking four cups. So we drink an extremely large amount of wine. So a huge kosher industry has built of kosher wines, many great quality wines, many award-winning wines. There's a um, the largest. Um, Kosher wine producer in the world, I believe, is here in Oxnard. Um, Herzog Winery, they have a restaurant there. They have a big um, wine factory. Herzog Winery, it's in Oxnard. They have a great restaurant there as well. Um, kosher restaurant, I
1: take Kosher yeah. restaurant. Kosher
0: restaurant with kosher wines, yes. Really? Sounds like a So, I believe they're the largest producers of kosher wines in the world. Um, And there are, but today there are, you walk into any kosher store, you can buy dozens, if not hundreds, of different brands of kosher wines, some of them pretty pricey, some of them cheap, some of them pretty pricey, and today you can really walk into any store, into Trader Joe's, into Ralph's, Total Wines, um, any wine store, any supermarket has plenty of a selection of kosher wines, there was a time, and maybe some stores still do it, where the kosher wines were put in a se- separate kosher wine section. Today, in most stores, the kosher wines are really mixed in with the other wines because they seem to sell just as well, um, if not better, than many of the non-kosher wines. So how, how are these wines produced? So all of these wines are produced by juice. These wines are produced in Oxnard and everywhere else where they produce wines. Most of the wines I believe produced in the United States are produced in California, um, not here in um, Oxnard or up in um, Paso Robles or in Napa Valley. Um, the, there are many many different wine areas in California, uh, but it definitely it's wine. This is wine country, wine capital, and so there are many many kosher um, wine places, uh, wine companies based in. California. Um, And the way they're all produced is where they have non-Jews bringing the grapes to the factory, but then the production of the wine from the squeezing of the grapes to the filtration to the um, fermentation process is all done exclusively by Jews. What they then do is, post-fermentation, they have a process and Herzog and others have perfected this process by now of pasteurizing the wine. So they put the wine through what's called flash pasteurization, similar to what's done with milk, the way we pasteur milk, um, where milk is put through flash quick pasteurization, where it kills the ba- it's hot enough to kill the bacteria, but not hot enough to um, ruin the taste of the milk. The wine, too, it is hot enough to. Um, to cook it um, to be considered halachically cooked, but not hot enough to kill, but not for long enough to kill. It makes it gets very hot, but not for long enough to kill the taste, because um, it's done very quickly. And uh, apparently, the alcohol separates, but then mix, immediately mixes back in right afterwards. And so um, it is. Um, and so they've perfected this process of pasteurizing the wine. The wine is then pasteurized. Before it is allowed to, um, before it is before it is bottled, before um, it's even often allowed to sit in the barrels, and so um, at that point on, once it is pasteurized, they then have uh, they then can have non-Jews working the rest of the process, and so all kosher wines are produced in that manner. Um, many of them are award-winning wines, but always the winemaker would have to be Jewish. If they're going to be tasting the wine, Um, I guess in theory you can have a Jew taking out the wine uh, and giving the non-Jewish winemaker to taste as long as they don't actually touch the actual wine. It could be done. I don't think it actually is. There's plenty of good Jewish winemakers. In fact, some of the best winemakers, I believe, are Jewish. Um, And so they have um, Jewish winemakers and Jewish people um, in the production process of the wine. Sorry. Yeah, they have red and wine. They have they have dozens of brands. You could buy them in Ralphs. They sell it in Trader Joe's. You could buy it everywhere. They have a number of them. Now there is another. So now today there are today there are many great kosher wines that you can buy. Almost every wine produced in the United States will be, not all, but almost all are mevushal. It will always say on the bottle, mevushal. It will always say it on the bottle. Many people will only buy wine that is mevushal because if you have wine that is not mevushal at your Shabbat table or at your party, you run into a problem. You can't have your waiters serving the wine. You can't have them corking it even. You can't have them opening it. You kind of are sitting at your Shabbat table. There may be some non-Jews there. Um, you don't want to embarrass them. Tell them you cannot touch the wine. Um, in fact, somebody once came to my home for a Shabbat dinner and brought a bottle of wine that was not mevushal, and he was not Jewish. And he walked in and announced he had come from the kosher store, Gladmart, on Pico. He bought it there. And the person at the store told him that since he's not Jewish and the wine was not mevushal, he would not be allowed to touch it after it was opened. Apparently he was told that. So he gave me the bottle of wine and said, here it is, but I can't touch it. So, um, but yes, yeah, so generally we just avoid opening non-Mevushal wine at our tables. Not all wine is Mevushal. Um, particularly many of the Israeli wines are not, because over there everyone's Jewish, um, many of the Israeli wines are not Mevushal. So uh, particularly with Israeli wines, it's important to pay attention. So it has to be kosher for one. Um, it does have to be kosher the wine. But <laughs> the wine if it's mevushal then we're not concerned over who touches it. But It can be kosher and not mevushal. Yes, there are many kosher wines that are not mavusha, Mostly Israeli wines, but there are. And many Israeli wines are mavusha. Not all Israeli wines are not mevushal. But there are wines that are not mevushal. Um, a lot of it depends on the brand. Some brands, all their wines are Mavushal, Some all their wines are not. Some have some and some. And you've got to check each one. What has distinguished it to become? pasteurized. It was cooked. It was cooked. And that was the loophole that our sages made when they originally made the rule. So we use that loophole today. We can and we do. Now the original prohibition of touching wine um, wine produced by non-Jews was originally, this prohibition was limited only to wine not alcoholic beverages. And presumably, the reason for this was that during Second Temple period in the land of Israel, there weren't other high-end alcoholic beverages. There was, may have been beer, but it was considered cheap. Nobody would socialize with beer. And so if you wanted a high-end beverage, everyone drink wine. And therefore, our sages only banned wine. They did not extend this prohibition to other alcoholic beverages. If it has no grape product in it, it is not a problem. If it does have grape product in it, and for that matter, even if it's non-alcoholic, such as grape juice, it would be a problem. So even grape juice must be produced by Jews, or at least until it was pasteurized and cannot be touched by non-Jews unless pasteurized. If it's a liqueur that has wine in it, we have the same problem. But an alcoholic beverage that has no wine in it, there was no prohibition. However, at a later stage, when Jews lived in later, after the second temple was destroyed, Jews were living in Babylon. In Babylon, they didn't have great wines. It's not wine country like Israel was. Israel was always a great place for wine. Still is today. In Iraq... Uh, Babylon, they didn't have much wine. Instead, they drank beer. Beer was the drink in Babylon. It was hard to get wine. And even the wines they had weren't great. Um, So they drank beer. They drank other forms of alcohol. They had an alcohol made out of dates. Um, They would have some sort of liqueur, I guess, made out of dates, um, date wine. And so they had other forms of alcohol. So our sages at the time placed a ban on drinking alcohol in a non-Jewish place. A place, a social place where non-Jews gather to drink alcohol. Today we call that a bar or a pub. Those kind of places, a Jew should not go there and drink alcohol. Furthermore, they forbade us from drinking alcohol at a non-Jewish party. So, non Jews throw a party, we should not drink alcohol, even though they may have kosher food, certified kosher, we should not drink alcohol at a non Jewish party. Now, this prohibition is only about going to bars and socializing with non Jews or going to non kosher parties and drinking, non Jewish parties and drinking there. We are, though, allowed to go to a, someone's a friend's wedding or a co worker's wedding or celebration and make a toast. We're not drinking. We're not getting drunk. Just the toast they were okay with. It wasn't a, um, it wasn't a prohibition on the particular f- alcohol or something that happens to the alcohol like the wine. It was just a general prohibition of drinking and so drinking with non-Jews. And th- the reason for this prohibition was again to pr- prevent assimilation, to stop Jews, go to bars, they connect, they meet up with non-Jewish men, non-Jewish women, and they then build a relationship, they want to marry, they marry outside the faith, and then that leads to assimilation. In order to prevent that, our sages forbade, Jews don't belong in non-Jewish, non-Jewish bars, don't belong in um, non-Jewish parties. Are there any Jewish bars? <laughs> it's called the Kiddush Club. <laughs> No, in general, we include wine in lots of parts of many parts of Judaism. We have many celebratory times when we drink lachaim. In fact, in my grandfather's shul, he had a shul in New Jersey, um, and and in his shul, and this, these were many of them were immigrants from the old country. They would every day after morning services, they would have a little lachaim every single morning. They would have they called it schnapps. A little schnapps and kichel. They would have a little drink every morning. But it was just a little toast to each other every morning. It wasn't a bar or drinking and partying. So Judaism doesn't see alcohol as something bad. We see it as something that can be used for good and bad. And we always had kiddush, small parties after services on Shabbat. And we had l'chaim at events. We would say l'chaim to each other. At a celebration, at a wedding, at a um, bar mitzvah, at a reason to celebrate, we would say a lachayim. We all said certain celebratory holidays, Purim, Simchat Torah, when we would say a little lachayim, say a few, uh, have a few drinks. However, we always drank small amounts of alcohol at spiritual times or in celebration. We never believed in, we always discouraged people from drinking alcohol on their own. Drinking alcohol yourself is not a healthy thing. A person should never drink alcohol themselves. That's generally a good rule. Um, And also, we should not drink alcohol just for social purposes, just at the bar, just to go drink. We should drink as part of a party, as part of a celebration. um, To toast to each other, just drinking for the sake of drinking is frowned upon in Judaism. So that's why there are no Jewish bars or kosher bars, because we don't do that. Jews don't do that. In fact, any description of Jews in Eastern Europe describe, and there are many such descriptions, um, memoirs, or we have, we have many you know, descriptions that were written of Jews in Eastern Europe over the past couple hundred years, and many of them contain the same note that most people in the villages, in the towns, the shtetls, right, it was partly Jews, partly non-Jews, they lived together, and um, the non-Jews at the end of the day, many of them were farmers or you know, small laborers, at the end of their day, what did they do? They would go to the pub. Every town, it's kind of like small town America back in the day, every town had its pub. That, that's what you went to at the end of the day. You took your day's wages and you went to the pub. Jews, what did they do at the end of the day? They never went to the pub. What did they do at the end of the day? They went to the base medrash. They went to the house of study. Every town had places that were centers for study, and they would go and study a little bit at the end of their day. And so it was that contrast, is mentioned in many places. That's just what we did. We, weren't, we didn't drink on a regular basis. and didn't drink just for the sake of drinking. We drank for occasions, at special moments, uh, in celebratory moments. But we never believed in drinking just for socializing. I have a question. When do you introduce um, wine to children? That's an excellent question. Other than when they're Let me finish off and I'll get that question right off. going run So the purpose of the prohibition of drinking wine touched by non-Jews is to keep us separate from non-Jews to prevent assimilation. Now, we live today, thankfully, in a culture of tolerance. For most of history, most of the world was intolerant of others. Intolerant of people with different beliefs, different backgrounds, different cultures, people that looked different. We live in a society that preaches tolerance, where tolerance is the norm, is expected. We value tolerance. We tolerate everyone, work with everyone, respect everyone. Judaism is a strong proponent of that. We don't evangelize. We don't force other people. We work with everyone. We Jews have lived among the nations for almost 2,000 years. We've lived among non-Jews. And we have done business with them. We've worked with them. We have um, been... uh, We we, we have worked with our non-Jewish neighbors when they allowed us to. Often they tried to kill us. But when they allowed us to, we did. We definitely worked with our non-Jewish neighbors and did business with our non-Jewish neighbors. Um, However... We always retained a certain distinction, a certain difference. There is also a secondary, second part of our culture today of where we, people believe in a melting pot. They believe that everyone should, ex- there is no true belief. Everyone should explore all the different options out there. Everybody should try a little bit from each culture. Everybody should... You don't have to be just yourself. We should all get a little bit from everything else. We should all be one and the same. Now, Judaism does not have a problem with taking from other cultures. Food, some other cultures have great food. Jews love pizza and sushi. And that's fine. Yes, that's fine. Well, people here love sushi. We give people what they want. So... People like foods from other cultures. That's fine. For some reason, nobody seems to like, you don't see other people making gefilte fish or chicken soup events. They don't <laughs> like our foods. But, but it's okay to take from other cultures, to take positive parts of other cultures. And yet, we Jewish people need to remain distinct while we tolerate everyone, respect everyone, work with everybody and love our neighbors, care for our neighbors, care for others. At the same time, we believe that Jews should remain distinct. We believe that we need to remain a separate people. We have been around for 3,300 years. And the only way that we will survive is is if we remain distinct. So yes, we can be friendly with non-Jews. Yes, we can do business have business partners who are non-Jews, non-Jewish co-workers, non-Jewish neighbors who we are very close with and very friendly with, and we invite to our bar mitzvahs and to our other celebrations. Um, We've done this for thousands of years. And yet, we must remain distinct and separate to ensure that Judaism survives and continues. We encourage single Jews who are looking for their... In Yiddish we call it bashert, for their mate. We encourage them to socialize with other Jews, not with non-Jews. Because we see Jews marrying outside the faith as a very severe problem. As a very severe, because it destroys the Jewish people. It's the main path to assimilation. And because of this concern, because we as Jews need to remain distinct, our sages therefore forbade us put or put limits on socializing with non-Jews. Create, and that is the reason for this law that we've mentioned before, forbidding us from drinking wine that was touched by non-Jews. And really then later forbidding us from even going to bars and going to non-Jewish parties. Because while we Jews have suffered from persecution over the years, the biggest threat today And the biggest threat to Judaism, really throughout history, has not been persecution. We have lost more Jews to assimilation over history than we have lost to persecution. While millions of Jews were killed before the Holocaust, millions of Jews were killed. But many millions more were lost to assimilation over the years. And so because of that, we believe it's very important that Jews remain distinct. And that is the reason for this law, this rule, um, which banned Jews from drinking wine touched by non-Jews in order to discourage us from partying with non-Jews. Although the sages did understand that we will need sometimes to drink wine with non-Jews and made the loophole of allowing us to drink mevushal wine with non-Jews. Um, however, and they also banned us from, in general, going to drinking events, bars, parties um, of non-Jews, not cel- celebratory events like someone's wedding, but just going, someone throws a party, let alone a party celebrating a non-Jewish holiday like a Christmas party. Jews don't belong there. right? That's not where we belong. We don't believe it, belong at non-Jewish parties. But the goal is to keep us distinct, to make sure that we retain our unique identity as Jews and continue, that the Jewish people continues as we have for the last 3,300 years, we continue to hold our identity distinct segregation? So thank you for joining us. Thank you all for joining. Thank you again, Eric. Good